sometimes you want to try different things and just for the sake of trying, just always having to focus that into some real problem that you're having. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, it's episode 127. Today, we're exploring how frontline maintenance teams are bringing the future of machine monitoring to life. Our guest this week is Igor Marinelli, founder of Traction. Now, Traction builds streamlined hardware software solutions to give maintenance teams comprehensive oversight of their operations. These guys democratize access to real-time monitoring and asset operations tools, and this solution's built for maintenance leaders and industrial decision makers. So today, we're going to be hearing more about this in context throughout our conversation with Igor. So with that, here are three things you can expect from this episode. First, we'll hear about Igor's background, including UC Berkeley, working on a maintenance team at a paper mill, and what inspired him to start Traction. We'll even get some insights as to what it was like going through Y Combinator, one of the most well-known and highly regarded startup accelerators in Silicon Valley. Second, we'll get some of Igor's perspectives on the realities of Industry 4.0 technologies. We'll hear about his take on 5G, machine learning, and in true manufacturing happy hour fashion, we'll go beyond the buzzwords and figure out where manufacturers can really be taking advantage of technologies that impact their operations. Finally, we'll discuss innovation in the context of frontline workers, and Igor will share his advice on moving past proof-of-concept projects to really get ideas off the ground, ideas that are impacting production and the morale of the folks on the plant floor. As always, if you want to learn more, if you want to explore a bit more after this episode wraps up, well, hey, we have all those links over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 127. And if you want to join a community of manufacturing leaders where we network, have conversations like the conversations in these interviews, and really just connect with the best and brightest in the industry, well, hey, join the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community on LinkedIn. That's at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. It takes you straight to our private group of over 600 leaders. If you shoot me a note there on LinkedIn, I will let you write in. So anyway, without further delay... It's time to meet up with Igor Marinelli and start today's episode. Igor, welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour. And you already know what the, the first question is. So if you and I were having this conversation in person over a drink, where would that be? Describe the setting. Yeah, probably it will be uh, very close to our headquarters in Atlanta. There's this place called the Nuke, um, which is just a pub, like a small tavern, close to Piedmont Park. You know, I'm a very fan of IPAs. So I don't know about, about you. <laughs> what do you like to drink? I'm, I'm an IPA fan as well. I have a feeling if we were hanging out there, let's say it's uh, maybe a little bit of a hot day in Atlanta, I think that IPA is going to be super <laughs> refreshing. Probably the gold drink of the manufacturing people, I would say. So yeah, or otherwise I can also brew you some caipirinhas that uh, 
from our hometown in Sao Paulo. <laughs> One of my favorite Brazilian beverages. It's been a while since I've been down there, but uh, you know, for the sake of today's conversation and travel time, let's say we're we're having our discussion in Atlanta. And if you and I were were having this conversation over a beverage, how do you answer the question, hey, what is what does traction do? Answer that as if we're like having a drink with one another in simple terms. Yeah, for sure. Um, traction is the all-in-one industrial workspace. So what we do, we really enable the frontline workers to have uh, a better understanding of their uh, own operations. And we're going to be talking about frontline workers later here in this interview. So I'm excited to dive into that a bit more as we get rolling. But first, Igor, we want to get to know you a little bit. And, and you have a very pertinent background for what you're doing in that you started in manufacturing, right? You had experience working in maintenance in a paper mill. So I, I have to ask, what was that experience like? Yeah, you know, I've done computer engineering. Um, so I've studied I've studied at UC Berkeley. And um manufacturing is that it's that thing that is magnet, right? Um it's so attractive when you look from the outside and you have that i i had this sensation that uh, i want to try that you know i want to go to work at a at a paper manufacturer um i like the paper process because it's it's just beginning to end so you see from from the the trees and and the eucalyptus and the pinus growing uh to like it's it's very circular right so you have that a very chemical process and it's very circular and they kind of reuse it a lot of things. So that was very attractive to me, especially that paper manufacturers, they are, you know, producing pulp and pulp is basically the base of like so many things on the earth nowadays that we think like paper is going to be extinct because we just don't print that things often anymore. But pulp is something that is essential, that is inside uh, like everything that we buy on, you know, card boxes or even uh, tampons and so on. So, um, in, in, so I had that curiosity and I thought, if not now, probably I'm never going to work in a manufacturing, right? Because uh, I was very much into the startup world uh, at that time already. Uh, I was CTO of another startup, but I decided to quit my job and to enter the manufacturing because I thought I need to give myself this experience. And funny enough, I got assigned to the maintenance team. Uh, the, it's kind of uncommon to hire a software engineer for a manufacturing plant. Um, they don't do that very often. But uh, so I was assigned to the maintenance team, which honestly for me was just the best experience of my life. I got so much involved with the maintenance folks. I think maintenance is very transparent, very direct. Uh, your job is to keep the operations running, right? Uh, so to that sense, everything, it's really obvious what you should be doing. And it's very easy to create relationships and to uh, solve problems together. Uh, whether when you're talking about operations, everything is just more like, yeah, maybe you add that 2% uh, performance plus here. Uh, maybe we're going to, you know, do something. And maintenance guys are like, yeah, whatever. We just need to keep the operations going. You know, the, our machines just need to be up and running and we're going to do whatever it takes to, uh, 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 to make that happen. Yeah. And, and I think there are some lessons to be learned about, let's say, generations in the workforce as well mm -hmm. from you. First of all, I think it's very interesting. I can't imagine that there are many computer engineering grads from UC Berkeley taking the jump into manufacturing. So I think it's very cool that that yeah. curiosity 
pulled you into that space. But once you got there, you mentioned that you were working with a lot of individuals that were very senior, had a lot of years of experience at these plants. You know, can you share maybe a story of what it was like interacting with, let's say, the more senior folks within the the maintenance team at the, the plant? Yeah, I remember I got assigned to a condition monitoring project. Uh, that paper plant needed a lot of monitoring. And the first thing that I thought is that we should have built our own hardware because the hardware that was like available there from other OEMs are simply, they weren't assigned for the maintenance. They're probably hardwares that the operations team were using, the quality teams were using, but it's not something that out of the box could generate any, any results. And, and like in a more prescriptive analysis of what's happening in that motor, engine, compressor, pump at that time. So I focused very much into that. Um, and, you know, I remember one story that one of the maintenance managers of the plant told me, and it was, you know, at that time, you, you see exactly how you're saying, like the, the, the senior members versus the, versus the, the young generations that, that's coming. And he told me when I was presenting the project, like, what do you know about maintenance, right? You've been in our plant for one year. Uh, what you have about age, I have about age working in factory. So I was 25 at that time. So basically like, you know, um, that's basically my, my career age and that's super impressive. But, uh, the funny thing is that when I decided to quit my job to open traction, because I thought, huh, this is not only a problem of this specific facility. This is a worldwide problem that I want to tackle. And, uh, you, you have to have some sort of courage to, uh, you know, uh, face the OEMs and, to, and the incumbents into that sector. And so I decided to open uh, traction. And two years later, the same guy reached out and said, hey, like, uh, we've been uh, talking about your solution. We need very much that into our factory. And I entered that same call. I'm like, yeah, things change, right? And uh, it, it's, it's just very, this is very common nowadays in customer meetings because I get it. Like you have 25 years working in manufacturing and generally you're talking with 25 year folks and um, you're going to have some sort of like, will this guy solve my problem? Right. And I guess you need to have this sort of mixture to be able to solve problems because like you already have been in, in, into relation with people that are, you know, 45, 50 years old. So you've been with that people already and they haven't so, so your problem. Right. So, um, so generally what I tell customers, yeah, it's like, you have to have this sort of blend, otherwise your problems are going to continue to be problem. Yeah. So having a blend of young and old in the workforce, uh, I've got two questions that are similar but different. And this will provide, I think, some actionable advice for the folks listening out there. You know, for the, the younger demographic that listens to this show, what would be your advice? You talked about courage, right? What's your mm -hmm. advice to get let's say, senior members of the workforce to take younger generations seriously in their roles? I think I have two advices. First, for the younger generations themselves, uh, you know, curiosity is not, it's just a starter thing. It's not what's going to move you. So I think like you have sort of uh, obligation to just do your research, try your own things without necessarily moving so many people around here and there, because it's kind of annoying, right? Like you just enter the facility, you already want to change everything, how, how, how the sausage is done. And sometimes, honestly, they just need, you know, improvements. You don't need to change the whole thing. You don't need to, to turn the wheel uh, uh, upside down. So I think like younger generations kind of hold on their, you know, eager 
to take on those challenges, but really try to do your side projects there and kind of prove first that they work uh, instead of just trying to blend a bunch of people and talking speculative things of why do you think that should work. So be very technical and show real data and experiments of why would that improve uh, yeah, anything that you're uh, doing. And I think like the senior generations, they need to, you know, uh, really think about uh, what this stubbornness is actually uh, achieving for them, you know, right? It's important that you uh, consider that you might not know everything. And even though you've been doing this process for 25 years, there might be something that could be done better. So you just have to be open to that. And also, most importantly, I think, be open to share your experiences. Because what I've learned uh, in order to build our, our product, it was extremely important to have the experience of the maintenance managers that were senior. They were sort of like the hack, right? The, um, the, the, the feel of, of all the, the, the knowledge that we have. So we had to live from that experience and sometimes they won't have the best solution ideas. And you might not even need the solution ideas from them, but you need to tackle the problem, understand the problem like, oh, okay, so this is actually the problem. So now I'm gonna think about a solution for that. Because like, um, if you start from the solution, probably that's not gonna work, right? If you start with a request like, hey, I need X, Y, Z for tomorrow, like start with why, you know? Why do you need that? What is exactly the problem? Because there might be a better way of doing that than just delivering a solution that someone, some, somebody uh, told you. I like that answer that you have it from two perspectives, right? And I certainly, as someone that's in my 30s, I try to pull as much knowledge as I can from folks that have been around the industry for 30 40 years. So a lot to be gained from there. A lot of great advice. I love what you said about, hey, you don't have to go change everything, but look for improvements and back it up with data. But my next question is a, a bit of an extension of that. And this is more of a personal question for you. We talked about younger generations and, and senior generations in the workforce. How do you in your case, get established companies to take a company that's younger and new to the market like traction seriously? What's your, what are your thoughts there? So Chris, as a technical founder, I've always looked uh, into the things sort of in the perspective of problem solution, right? And problem product. So I always needed some backup, uh, senior backup to all the other operational roles. So for example, uh, we were talking about senior members. Our CFO is Michael Lehman. Michael Lehman was CFO of Volkswagen for, for almost 25 years as well. So this is one of the guy that, you know, when I saw him and we talking with him, he was one of our first uh, customers at that time. And, you know, I just got passionate in the way that he thinks, the way that he gets things done. And I was like, I want you for my team. And then three years later, I hired him as our CFO. So I think like, uh, having contact with those senior members will for sure help you a lot to explore, but also you need to understand what do you want to change and what do you want to challenge? Because for example, selling. Selling is one thing that's been there for a while and a lot of the OEMs have mastered the industrial selling uh, format, which I particularly, I don't like that. You know, I don't like the way, because when I was a buyer at the industry and when I was searching for condition monitoring experiences, uh, products, I didn't like the experience that was being given and I didn't like the, the, the selling format. So this was one of the things that I had to, you know, uh, create our own way 
that it was just more connected to the maintenance reality and just really focus in one persona, you know? We're, we don't want to build Legos here. We just really want to um, get, get things done. We just really want to focus on your problem and solve it. So that's why I don't like the way that so much that the industry 4.0 is being portrayed. I don't like to think as it as something like that is a proof of concept, that is a trial. Uh, you have to really think, what is really my problem? You know, industries is being there, they're being operated, they're generating EBITDA. So basically like they're there. So everything is going to be tied to how much you're saving, how much you're reducing, uh, what is the ROI into that. So you re- you have to really be tied to reality. And like sometimes you want to try different things and just for the sake of trying, just always having to to focus that into some real problem that you're having and and also be focused on scaling that and solving it for real, not only for your plans, but for the whole group, right? Because that will take you from here, from a maintenance technician to a supervisor, to a coordinator, and eventually even a director. Great answer. Um, I, I pulled a quote out of there that really stuck out. You know, you need to figure out what you want to change and what you want to challenge. I think you've uh, given some great advice on, let's say, picking your battles, knowing where to look for improvements versus changing everything per se. Um, and I love how you talk about, you know, similar to your last answer, bringing that senior experience onto your team where you know you can learn from and that experience will, you know, increase the value and the overall impact of your team as well. You you just talked about Industry 4.0 there. You mentioned it. We're about to get there to talk about Industry 4.0, IIoT here in a second. But one more question about your background. And this is one I've been really curious about. You you went through Y Combinator, right? And we think of that, mm-hmm. I think, as, hey, Silicon Valley, right? So what is it like being an industrial-focused hardware company in Y Combinator? Tell us about that experience. We're the round pegs on the square hole there, right? So uh, basically, um, you know, Y Combinator hasn't really have the the history of investing in industrial solutions or hardware software companies. And I think when you're a hardware company or when your your whole base is to build hardware and also provide a software on top of it because they are intrinsically connected and you need to do the two of the things well, at the end for the investors, you need to prove that you are a software company and that the hardware like is just a functional add-on that needs to be done for your software to be able to operate. And I think what Y Combinator saw at that time is that our growth trajectory, our sales efficiency, you know, our product, everything was just so, so well done. And our numbers were atop a B2B benchmarking, uh, for, for US companies that they did, didn't really distinguish from a hardware company, from a software company. But that presents challenges as well, because we had to learn way more things our own way. There's not so many things documented. There's not so many right answers uh, right there that you can find if you're opening a software as a service, a pure company. You have so many content online and we just had to be the outsiders, you know, and um, look for the things to do in our own way. And we've been growing a lot. I think it's um, it's important to mention how much we've grown our revenue and and, and customer base. And basically, we've been steady on to the 400, 500% growth year over year since we started. Uh, so I think like it's been a, a, a really a, um, 
surprising for, for everybody, right? You have that goals on spreadsheet and you actually, you're, you're able to exceed it. But I think that all comes down to one factor, which is our upselling and cross-selling motion, our multi-product strategy, because we decided to focus so much on the maintenance thing and forgot everything else. If the operations come in, no, we don't work with you. If the quality comes in, we don't work with you. Logistics comes in, sorry, we cannot do that. Because, you know, when uh, industries, they kind of see a startup, they like, hey, let's treat it as a software house. Let's build what we're, we're, well, we need to solve here. But you need, as a founder, you need to have that focused, sniper focused on a persona. And maintenance is the folks that we love to work and the solutions that we're going to build. So because of that, um, you know, when, when we're looking at our net new revenue every month, so everything that's add on traction monthly, uh, 60% of that comes from existing customers already. So our customer base is just basically saying, hey, this is so good. Give me more, right? Give me more units for me to monitor my critical assets or give me different products for me to monitor different needs. For example, we offer mechanical monitoring for rotational assets. We offer electrical monitoring for, for non-rotational assets and also asset management. So everything you can uh, tie it up and actually, you know, operate your, your industry 24 seven with traction. Yeah. I like what you had to say about Silicon Valley and, you know, the, the relationship between hardware and software, because there's a lot about these industrial hard tech solutions that let's say is still very understandable to a Silicon Valley VC. One final question mm-hmm. in this area before we we switch gears a little bit here. You you got it popping in my mind is do you think Silicon Valley is starting to better understand the industrial sector, right? I, I feel like you were one of the pioneers going through Y Combinator like that. Doesn't need to be like an exact answer, but just based on your experience, what what's your temperature or your thought on that? So, you know, Chris, it's much harder to create a category changing product than something that is a copycat, right? Than something that's you have a formula already and that people are willing to take that huge risk. Like our first investors, they take on a huge risk, you know? Um, and also <laughs> at a very, very interesting outcome now. But uh, I think like um, category changing products are extremely hard. Um, industrial sectors, they're ready to be disrupted. You have the OEMs, you have the incumbents, and you have the first wave now. But I think you really need to tie to solutions that make sense that customers upsell. The thing is that in industrial industries, they are a almost a infinite pocket, right? You have budgets that comes from everywhere and you have ways of tackling that only if you have a very, very good product. Like remember, we're competing with, you know, Germany technologies that's been there for centuries, right? And, uh, and you need to find a way to that your technology it's, it's better, right? And, and to, and to prove it and to patent that and so on. So, um, but I think it's rewarding. It's rewarding because like when you're able to do that, your upsell motion, your net revenue retention is just so high that it pays off uh, your hard work. 
Excellent answers. I appreciate kind of the the behind the scenes look into Y Combinator here. We're like I said, we're largely switching gears now to talk about IIoT and get some of your takes on it because our audience knows that one of the missions of manufacturing happy hour is to demystify the buzzwords that are out there. So, you know, let's <laughs> talk about this from the perspective of connectivity first, right? Uh, it's discussed a lot in the context of 5G today. That's the trend. But a lot of manufacturing locations, let's be honest, are in 3G areas. Tell us a bit more about this. And can you also tell us what should manufacturers be doing to allow themselves to take advantage of their accessible technologies. Yeah, honestly, I'm not a huge believer of 5G, and I'll explain you why. I think like uh, manufacturing facilities are very widely spread, mostly in rural areas, and also multi-location and multi-geographics. Like you have a lot of US manufacturers that are our clients, they have a lot of plants in Mexico as well that we need to monitor. And there, 2G is king. <laughs> it's not 3G, it's not 4G, it's for sure not 5G. So I think there's a problem when you tie a, a solution to a specific connectivity. So yeah, this will only work in 5G or, oh, before you install that in, there's actually something we didn't tell you, you need to install that 5G antenna right there, right there because our solution only operates with 5G. That's a threat, you know? Uh, you should be focusing on technologies that enable you to start right out of the gate with the connectivity that you have. And that's generally not 5G, that's generally not LoRaWAN, that's generally not Sigfox, that's, that's mobile carriers. That's 2G, 3G, 4G, LTE, right? So I think like, um, most of OEMs, they basically neglected that because they operate in a mode of SKUs. They just want to sell you the hardware. And yeah, like it's your problem now, how we're going to connect this, wire this, uh, extract the data out of that. Oh, if you want, you can pay the, you can pay out our consulting fee and we, we will help you do that, right? So generally you need to break through all of that and just provide something that's just really out of the box that connectivity is not an issue. Connectivity needs to be seamless. You don't need to even think that connectivity is there. And generally, the way that we do that, we bypass the industrial Wi-Fi infrastructure that generally is not also available. Uh, and we create a stack that's able to operate. Doesn't matter where your facility um, is uh, it's actually located. And also, we've done a, another step in our product as well. Not only our products, they fall back to 2G, GSM, GPRS, all the, all the, all the uh, mobile carriers technologies, but they also are multi-carriers. So what actually happens is that when they arrive at your facility and you're first connected them, they scan all the carriers that are available and they choose the best mobile operator that they have the best connectivity there. Excellent answer. I appreciate you putting it in the context of what you're doing at Traction as well. And I think that's, in general, good food for thought for the industry, right? There are other considerations around, let's say, the new technology or new products you're putting into your facility that you need to be considering, right? 5G may be the future. It is certainly the in vogue term right now, but people need to keep in mind, hey, let's work with the plant where they are today if this is going to be a big extra that they need to think about. 
a, a separate topic is uh, let's let's take on machine learning next, right? So McKinsey, for example, is talking about machine learning and data, saying you need to create like a data lake so that you can do like a machine learning implementation, right? I'm curious to get your perspective. Are are most manufacturers ready for machine learning, or do we need to focus on measuring direct variables like you know vibration, for example, that you're very familiar with? Oh, Chris, that's an acid topic. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that, but like, you know, those companies that you mentioned, they focused on selling a very generalistic package of machine learning and one size fits all, right? Uh, the problem with those approach is that generally, you know, you're comparing apples to pineapples, right? So what's available there in the industry nowadays? You have pressure variables for, for the production. You have um, like density variables. You have throughput variables. So essentially some temperature variables. So essentially if you combine all of that and go through the actual pain and work to, okay, let's set up our data lake. Let's take this data that's out here in our local servers. Let's put that on AWS, Azure, or whatever cloud there is. Uh, now let's create generalistic models, approach, approaches, and assumptions to kind of to, to come back to the same place and kind of try to do any interference on what's happening in this machine right now. And the problem is that if temperatures like this, pressures like this, and you know, water levels like this, you cannot say your motor is misaligned. You just cannot draw back to that conclusion. It's just basically impossible because this uh, generalistic approach focused on taking whatever trash is out there and trying to do, yeah, trying to do something that, you know, is magic and where magic cannot be done. You need to focus as a maintenance manager, you need to focus in monitoring the specific variables that will give you the exact, um, the exact, uh, uh, um, assumption. So let's think that, for example, you're in, in doctor, right? And you have an AI running on top of an X-ray, uh, and you're trying to find a tumor probably in the chest area. That AI cannot scan your leg. It needs to scan the chest. It needs to be able to provide exactly the type of tumor that you have there and to, for the doctor to be thinking about treatment, right? So that's exactly what Traction is doing here. Uh, we're providing that x-ray with that condition saying, hey, like your motor is misaligned, your pump has a cavitation, uh, your compressor uh, is missing love, and just basically... Uh, giving that to, to the maintenance uh, technicians so that they can perform the treatment. They can think about the treatment. We don't know the treatment, but we know the diagnosis. So it's, it's generally the same concept here. I think Chris, it doesn't matter whether it's traction solution or whatever is their solution that is a condition monitoring. What you need to be asking your provider is like, hey, how is this going to provide me the exact diagnosis of what's happening in my rotational asset? Because like just something that your machine is anomalous. Okay, what do I do with that now? what axis, what part needs to be replaced, that's not enough, right? And uh, so so be careful when you're spending tons of money and trying to build up this data lake. Try to monitor first the primary variables. And primary variables are vibration in all the three axes of the machine. That's primary. Uh, you all, if, you ha you're, if you're monitoring electrical um, equipment, you need to monitor current. Current is excellent. Current is everything because you have the current wave, you have the current harmonics, you have the, the Fourier uh, uh, transformation, and, and you have like 
uh, you're able to uh, say that that motor has a phase imbalance, for example. So, so try to focus on the things that have been widely studied in the mechanical engineering books and, and things that you can actually have a, 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 a right approach and, and, and the right answer to that. What I've learned and what I've heard in your past two answers is there are a lot of things that we can do in manufacturing where we're taking a couple, two steps too far, whether we're talking about having the connectivity, whether we're talking about measuring direct variables. And it's important to, like you're saying, hey, look at what the most direct variables are first before going down this machine learning path. So great advice. I have one more uh, big topic for us to take on in this little, let, let's say the the Igor hot takes on IIoT category <laughs> of our conversation. Um, let's talk about integration. So integrating a bunch of disparate systems seems to be one of the biggest bottlenecks for industry 4.0, right? You and I have talked about this before. Mm -hmm. You know, it could mean, for example, it takes nine months to integrate and then three months to see if your assumptions actually worked once the thing's up and running. Um, but before I go too far, you know, I, I want to get your take, Igor. What are the common integration challenges that you see? Integration is a very important topic when you're setting up a new thing. Uh, I think what happened is that Manufacturing facilities haven't questioned themselves that much in the past whether that specific technology from an OEM would integrate with anything. And what's happening nowadays, the consulting companies are seeing that big money where integration integrations are. And like, we need to tackle that because it's just right there, right? You bought like three, four, five different systems that, that they, they don't integrate to each other. And now you need to hire a bunch of consultants to kind of create this pipeline to, you know, try to mesh all this data that you have and maybe put this, you know, this data that you have here in your ERP or your SAP, Oracle, IBM and whatnot to open a work order for you. But then when you open your SAP, they don't have a module that you can automate your work orders. So then you need to come back and, and you know, it's, it's a whole mess. And, uh, and it's kind of like already there, but you, you still have the change. You still have the chance to change that. Uh, by questioning more your providers and understanding like, hey, how does this integrate with my SAP or Oracle? What is the pipeline that you have currently? You know, give me the documentation so I can see that. And the same for hardware providers, like uh, what are the technologies here in OT that you're going to provide? You know, how easy are you going to make this sensor available for us to consume the data? And I, I, I've seen some factors with the absurdness of like having a local server here and when you go there, hey, I need to access that. No, this is from the OEM. Like you cannot pull data from there. The SQL is right there, the database, and you cannot consume it, you know? So yes, good example of the OEMs owning the data, right? You know, may, whether it's specifically this topic about integration or, you know, everything we've talked about around machine learning and connectivity as well, and, and all these things that impact the industrial internet of things. What's your advice for the manufacturing leaders out there that are listening to this? How do you overcome these challenges? So one really easy thing that you can do, even right now, you can call your ERP provider and say, hey, where is my API, right? So I think like most of the ERPs of the industries, you, you cannot even consume your own API. Um, so that's one thing that will allow you just to be able to run things more smoothly and with less manual work. And for the next solutions that you're going to purchase, 
just think about the all-in-one environment that you're creating, right? Just think about in the future, that vibration sensor might not be only a vibration sensor, it might turn into an energy sensor, and you might want to have asset management together as well. Because, you know, essentially the goal here is how do I, how do I live from a preventive schedule that I'm changing things every six months, every 12 months, every 18 months, and how do I go to a event-based scheduling, right? Or a condition scheduling. Both are great. Uh, you know, even sometimes it's even more simple and as effective, right? You change by the hours, uh, by the working hours of your machine that has actually operated and not by the amount of days that passed. So uh, I think both, both states are fine, but you just sh should be looking more ahead. I think that's an excellent, simple piece of advice, you know, as someone that understands the maintenance world and the IIoT world as well. Hey, asking for where the APIs are, right? Because that's what you're going to need to really create that industry 4.0 environment. So I appreciate all the perspectives here in this part. You know, as we get to, towards the end of our conversation, I want to talk with you a little bit about innovation. And specifically around like proof of concepts and engaging frontline teams, because you've been on the front line before. So let, let's start off with a, a basic question. Why do most mm -hmm. proof of concepts fail? What's been your experience? <laughs> you know, um, you're throwing me some hard questions today. And um, the first we need to go back to think about why why do innovation areas exist, right? Do you have any guess? For improvements to the way we're doing things. Mm -hmm. That's my general answer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think like the way that innovation has been done in industry over time, it, there, there's been a, a funny process, which is, I think it's not a positive process that happened that the autonomy from the frontline workers and operation, they were basically taken out, right? So the person who's having the problem generally has less and less budget to solve their own problems. And you're concentrating that into a corporate office with an innovation room full of stickers. And that's the innovation era that's going to change all the, the problems that we're having. The problem is that this is more and more becoming disconnected and like, you have that maintenance technician or supervisor that, hey, if you give me X, my life will change. Everything here will change. The ROI is going to be X, Y, Z. And, you know, things are going to improve. And generally, they don't have the voice, neither the, the budget on hands to do that. And you have this sort of like innovation team that's like, yeah, maybe we thought about this new idea, drone X, Y, Z, this uh, robot, you know, walking our factory. And that proof of concept will fail because it's meant to fail. Like the thing is that they put that already there without any necessary, necessarily problems attached to it. So generally when you say proof of concept, it's not something that's, that's good. You know, it's something that if you need to prove that concept, why is it there in the first place? Because, you know, uh, your shoes, I don't know, your shoes broke and, and you go into the store and you don't say to the guy, hey, I need to proof of to do a proof of concept of these shoes and, and run with that for a month. You just buy the shoes and you know it's gonna solve your problem. Whether it's a running shoes, a basketball shoes, or or, or just a day-to-day -day shoes. So uh, I think like because you know your problem, right? Uh, so you don't need to try 10 different shoes. You know the shoes you want and the shoes is gonna help you. So that's a problem with POCs in general, 
is that they fall very, very far from where the existing problem is actually uh, uh, um, needed. So then my question is, you talk about like the frontline workers that know what the problem is. You talk about a lot of times this gets put 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 on a innovation team, if you will. How do you get the innovation team and the frontline workers in the same room to work on this together? Or is that the right solution? Could be. I think the innovation team should go more to the factory, <laughs> right? Should spend more time there talking with the operations and actually enabling them to be a part of the, the solution process. And think about things that are um, lifetime for your business, right? Uh, if you're thinking about trials and so on, like you have money, you have a budget there, why would you be testing things out? You know, you know what works and you know what doesn't work. So generally, if you're trying, it's because you're afraid it's not going to work because generally it's not something that you should be trying in the first place. So just having that... Uh, just that police mindset in terms of like, we need to be very laser focused on what's actually a problem. And innovation teams can participate that, when that into that or not. But I think like just, you know, enabling the teams to choose for themselves is the first step. Giving that autonomy and giving that sort of budget for whoever's having the problem. I like that. Be laser focused on what actually is the issue. You know, another thing you and I have talked about before that I thought was a really pragmatic approach to what we're talking about is you've said it's important to like set a budget for the frontline teams themselves to test out new ideas. I'm curious, you know, what does this look like in practice? I mean, do you have, can you share an example that illustrates how all of this works, right? Because I think that ties into a lot of the things that you've been mentioned around, hey, making sure we're really addressing the problem. And these are the people that know what the problem is. Yeah, absolutely. That might be an idea. Like, I think I've seen some industries operating into that mode that they don't have any innovation area, but they're still innovating and, and doing different things and better and, and increasing their uh, their profits, you know? And I think the answer to that, whether you have it or not, is not a mandatory thing to have an innovation area, but just like the mandatory thing is to give the autonomy and budget to the frontline teams. Just defining a budget in your PNL uh, and, and just giving it to them systematically and saying, yeah, that's what you have for new solutions in that specific category uh, this year, whether it's condition monitoring, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, production monitoring, whatever you already identify, that's really the issue, and just enabling them to choose for themselves uh, with some sort of consensus on the frontline teams and their and their leaders. And uh, But I, I don't think they need any agency, agency into that. That kind of like falls back to who, who you're hiring, right? I completely trust the maintenance teams into all manufacturing facilities. Those are the greatest folks I ever worked with. So I think like it comes back for, to who you're hiring there and, you know, they're able to decide for themselves. I love it. This episode has contained a lot of high praise for all the maintenance heroes out there that are making an impact on uh, manufacturing facilities. And yes, for those listening to the audio, Igor's giving that a little fist pump right now. I am too. So, um, hey, we've covered a lot of great ground. I like your fresh approach and actionable advice to all these trends we hear about, and you're offering ways to really take action on them, which has been excellent. We covered a lot of ground. Is there anything you wish I would have asked you, Igor, that hasn't come up in this conversation? 
Yeah, Chris, I think we've covered all the most important topics here. I just want to praise again uh, the manufacturing teams and uh, and the maintenance teams all around the world. I think like those are the ones that are making our our GDP grow every day and and, and running our country. And I think like uh, credit where credit is due, and that's for the maintenance teams for sure. Excellent. Well, hey, next time we have this conversation, hopefully it's over an IPA at the Nuke down in Atlanta. <laughs> in the meantime, though, what's the best way to connect with you and the traction team to keep an ear out for all the new things you're doing in the industry? Yeah, for sure. We're very um, open on our LinkedIn pages. So you can just type traction on LinkedIn. You can go to traction.com. Our team is more more than welcome to uh, receive you and, and, and to chat with you about uh, what we can do or what we can learn together in the, that space. Excellent. And I will have a link to all of those in the show notes pages. Our audience is very well versed in LinkedIn. So you should be seeing some connection requests after this show. And with that, Igor, I just want to say thank you so much for jumping on Manufacturing Happy Hour. Thank you, Chris. Hey, thanks for listening, and a big thank you to Igor and the entire Traction team for making this episode possible. If you want to learn more, if you want to access any of the resources we mentioned in these episodes, whether that's Traction's website, whether that's the bar, the nuke that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, or if you want to connect with Igor, like he said at the end, well, hey, go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 127. It'll take you to links for all of those things I just mentioned. I also do want to give an extra thank you to Traction for sponsoring this episode. That's right, Igor and the Traction team just became the newest partners of Manufacturing Happy Hour. You'll be hearing more about them in future episodes, but it was really great to get to know Igor this time around here in episode 127. One final call to action. If you want to connect with industry leaders like Igor, like myself, or 600 other people that are driving the manufacturing industry forward, Go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. That'll take you to our private LinkedIn community. That link just shoots you straight over to LinkedIn. Hey, shoot me a connection request. Request to join this group would be great to have you in there. Again, that's manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. And with that, that's it for this week. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next time. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.